0: Good morning. I'm very grateful to your rector for the invitation to be with you today and to uh, meet with your vestry yesterday for their vestry retreat. Although this is my first visit to Summit, New Jersey, it's a little bit like a homecoming for me in that uh, I spent my elementary school years in Tenafly, New Jersey, I guess not too far from here. And I was also intrigued to discover that your church was dedicated by Bishop George Doane in 1855. And Bishop Doane, before he was bishop, was the first rector of the church that I served as a curate when I was in Connecticut. And I also discovered this morning that your longtime rector, Bishop or, or the Reverend Kinsolving. Uh, I believe was the brother of one of the bishops of Arizona, so uh, uh, we have some connection. It's also been a, a pleasure to spend time with your vestry and learn of all of the wonderful activities and programs that take place here. I understand that you're the fastest-growing parish in the diocese of uh, in this diocese, and um, your energy and enthusiasm are a model for the rest of the church. I'm going to take back some of the lessons that I learned here uh, when I returned to Arizona. Father Matthew asked me to come because he was intrigued with a little book that I wrote called Augustine's Relic, Lessons for the Church from England's Oldest Book. It's the story of a manuscript that resides in the Parker Library in Cambridge, England. It's a copy of the four Gospels given by Pope Gregory the Great to St. Augustine of Canterbury when he came to England in the year 596, and it has been in England ever since. Father Matthew asked your vestry to read this book, and he asked me to come and lead a retreat about it. Now, you may already be thinking, well, what does this have to do with anything, I hope this is gonna be a sermon about history and all those dates, boring. But let me assure you, when, when I learned more about this ancient document, I became convinced that it's far more than just an old piece of parchment. It has lots to teach us about what it means to be the church. In fact, we might even call it a kind of a blueprint for what the church needs to be about in the 21st century. First of all, St. Augustine's gospel book was written out of a sense of mission. In the case of the book, the mission to the Anglo Saxon people who lived at the very edge of the known world. And that book used the latest technology of its time, illuminated painting, to teach the gospel. It's important, it contains, for instance, the oldest picture of Jesus at the Last Supper in existence. And finally the book survived because it was seen as a link that we have with our most ancient traditions. It's no wonder that this book is used today by the Archbishops of Canterbury when they take their oath of office and are uh, enthroned at Canterbury Cathedral. Our scripture lesson for today also echoes many of the same themes that I found in my study of this manuscript. Perhaps the lesson that we heard from Corinthians sums it all up best. Paul tells us first of all that it is the goal of the church to grow and that we only grow by making hard choices and that we should never forget Though all we, all, Although we may work hard and do the planting and the watering, as it were, it is God who gives the growth. Now, there's a saying that I know you've all heard before. When everything else fails, read the directions. We as Christians have been given a very clear set of directions about what our goal is and about how we're supposed to get there. We get in trouble when we neglect those instructions and start to substitute our own agenda for God's agenda. The oldest book in England is a gospel book and our prime directive as Christians is to share the gospel, to share the good news with others. So what is the gospel? You would be surprised how many regular churchgoers have trouble answering this question. I sometimes ask it when I go in visitations. But it's kind of a trick question because you really all know the answer and you know it because you've seen it every time you watch a sporting event on television because there's somebody in the congregation that is holding up a sign that says what? John 3.16. And you know what John 3.16 says? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that we should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the best one-sentence statement of the gospel in the Bible. It's paraphrased by a clergy friend of mine in language which is a little more earthy, but just as true. The gospel, the good news, he says, is that God gives a damn. That God gives a damn about us and about creation. And how do we know that? Because of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But how do we know that we are preaching and witnessing to this good news? The answer is because people's lives are changed. If you are not finding your life changed by being at church or don't see your community being affected for good by what goes on here, then find another church. Peter Drucker, perhaps the most famous management consultant of our time, used to say, the church has only one product to offer the world, transformed lives. So at church, you ought to expect that your heart will get softer, that your compassion will deepen, and that you will find both emotional and physical healing in this place. And you ought to expect that you, too, will be called to be in those places where Jesus would be if Jesus were to come back today. Ask yourself that question. If Jesus were to appear in Summit, New Jersey this morning, where would you find him? Well, my guess is not just in a church pew. You would find Jesus in the the emergency room of the hospital, in the local jail, at the train station, on the streets. And if that's where you would find Jesus, then that's where you ought to find Jesus' followers. But in order for us to be agents of transformation, we also need to reclaim our mission. Pope Gregory sent St. Augustine of Canterbury to the Anglo-Saxons because they lived on the fringe of the civilized world. Did you ever see that uh, ad for Capital bank visa card that, uh, with those big burly guys uh, wearing helmets and dressed in furs, and they say, what's in your wallet? Remember that, that great ad? Well, that's what the Anglo-Saxons must have looked like. Think, think big, big, scary Viking types. It would have been easier for Augustine and his band of monks to stay home in the comfort of, of sunny, civilized Rome than to cross the seas to England with its bad food and lousy weather but they knew the fundamental tenet of Christianity, that the church is built on mission. And that as strange as it might sound, our church today exists for those people who aren't even here yet. It doesn't just exist for us, but for those people beyond these four walls. Especially people who are different than us, who we might find to be a little bit scary. In the southwest part of the nation where I come from, one such group are Hispanic immigrants. Another group is the working poor, who, as we discovered in the last election, feel marginalized and forgotten. Many of our youth, too, feel ignored by a church that they see as more preoccupied with power and money than with following the way of Jesus. A college chaplain friend of mine sums it up. He says... uh, I hear this from my students all the time. I love Jesus, but I hate the church. The writer Barbara Brown Taylor puts it this way. If churches saw their mission to reach the outsider rather than to protect the institution, there's no telling what might happen. What if people were invited to come tell what they already knew of God instead of to learn what they're supposed to believe? What if they were blessed for what they are doing in the world instead of chastened for not doing more at church? What if church felt more like a way station than a destination? What if the church's job were to move people out the door instead of trying to keep them in by convincing them that God needed them more in the world than in the church? Being a Christian in the first century wasn't easy, nor was it in the sixth century, nor in the 21st century. As far as we know, Jesus never said, follow me because it's going to be really easy. The reading from the book of Deuteronomy we heard this morning made it clear that God is always giving us a tough choice to choose the way of life or to choose the way of death. Jesus, in the gospel, puts it, says it, it says in effect, you think that following the Ten Commandments is hard. You, I'm going to ask even more of you. Remember, Jesus says, you heard that it was said in the law, but I say of you, and I ask of you to go even further. In this difficult time in our nation's history, there are many who would confuse the Christian agenda with the American agenda. That's why church and state are separate for a reason, because it's far too easy to confuse God with Caesar. Perhaps more than ever in the days to come, we will be called upon at some cost to stand up for our core value as Christians, to practice what we preach by opposing racism, by advocating for the poor, by welcoming the stranger. These stands will make us anything but popular, but they will make us stronger in our faith. St. Paul gives us clear directions for our future. Grow the church, make the hard choices, trust in God. I believe that such a biblical roadmap can increasingly pull us out of our own internal concerns as an institution and into closer relationship with those around us who are seeking to do God's work. In the church, we used to hear a lot about the so-called mission of the church. I think the more correct approach would be to focus on the mission of God, which sometimes is going on outside the church. It means looking around for those places in our community where we see God already at work and then getting on board with those folks. I'm especially impressed how you have partnered with your neighbors in your many outreach programs. They may have a different faith than ours, they may have no faith at all, but nonetheless, they're often doing the work of God. In my diocese, I've tried to encourage our clergy to model this approach by becoming chaplains to their communities. As part of their letter of agreement, all of our new clergy have to commit to one day a month to be outside the church office and out in the community, serving as a chaplain, sometimes as a chaplain to the police department or or at a factory. Uh, One of our priests even visits the local animal shelter. And to make sure that I practice what I preach, I volunteer one day a month at the Phoenix airport. It's very interesting. I call the experience coffee hour with 10,000 people. But I've learned a lot from them, and I know that they appreciate someone there to pray with them, especially when their flights get canceled. As a bishop, I've seen the good things that happen when Christians live for those beyond themselves. Sadly, I've often seen what happens when congregations think only of their own needs. I'm reminded of the words of one of the Former Archbishops of Canterbury, William Temple, back in the 1940s, said that the church that lives for itself dies by itself. Seen that happen in my diocese. I used to visit a congregation uh, and they would say to me, Bishop, we're not really interested in having a Sunday school or any kind of Bible study. We just want to come to church on Sunday morning, see our friends, have coffee, and go home. Well, that church is now closed. But I've also seen wonderful things happen too. We have a a little parish in the rural area of our state where a new young rector with lots of energy went in. And the first thing that he did uh, was he went to the fire department and blessed the fire trucks. And then he went across the street and had an appointment with the principal of the elementary school. And he got to go know the community and they got to know him. And now that little church has three services on Sunday and it's standing room only. Recently, I've been studying that demographic segment of our country who call themselves the nuns. That's not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Those people who, when they're asked their religious preference, will say, none of the above. This is the fastest growing group in the American religious scene, almost 30% of the population. And they're mostly younger folks. The motto for many of them, and I'm sure you've heard this before, is, I'm spiritual but not religious. Heard that from your neighbors? I bet you have. Nuns consider organized religion not just irrelevant to their spiritual needs, but sometimes even hostile to their values. They mistakenly write off all practicing Christians as judgmental, bigoted, homophobic, and repressive they're often completely unaware that most churches are, in fact, involved in working to improve the lives of their communities. The way to impress a nun, it turns out, is for those of us in the church to be true to our core values, actively engaged in our community, and radically welcoming those who come through our doors. It won't be easy, but we can be assured that God will be with us. Remember, we may plant, and we may water, but God gives the growth. When St. Augustine landed on the shore of England not far from what would become Canterbury, the home base for Christianization of Britain, he had very little with him. A few supplies, a handful of helpers, and a box of books, including the one that survives to this day. Augustine was met by a fierce band of pagan warriors who were either hostile or suspicious. It was not a great start. But in time, through the preaching and example of of him and his followers, what became the Church of England grew and grew until it expanded far beyond the shores of Britain to include millions of people from many countries and many different races." We who are here today are the heirs of that tradition. We're the fruits of his labor, and we can be proud of our rich history. We are here because men and women like Augustine followed the plan that God gave us in scripture. They follow the divine directions, and we can too. Make hard choices, follow Jesus, Trust in God and grow the church.